Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. If you've got a Bible with you, um, of all places, we're going to turn to Leviticus 16. We don't go there very often. I think it almost deserves a whoop, but maybe not. Woo! Okay. But before we do anything else, let me, um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for, for what, what happened at Easter and for what you've done for each of us. And I pray that this morning we might each know something of your love for us through Jesus. I pray that you'd speak in truth and that it would change our lives. Amen. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, or begotten son if you're old school, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this is part four in a four-part series on God Loves, which is our Easter series. And it's a bit of an odd, odd weekend to preach this sermon, because Easter was last week. And I don't know what your Easter was like. Did you have a good Easter? Yeah? Good. Good. I wonder if you've ever thought in relation to Easter, or maybe you've even asked these kind of questions, but... But I often find myself asking questions like, why on earth did God do it the way that God did it? Why Easter? And why did Jesus have to die? Why did he do it that way? So, so that's what we're going to spend a bit of time looking at this morning, if you're with me for that. Leviticus 16 is where we're going to begin. And we're going to look at what it means and why Jesus died. So let me give us some context. I'll start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man and God created woman, and he placed them in a garden that we read in Genesis is called Eden. And and he made this perfect place, and, and man was in perfect relationship with God. They hung out together in this perfect place. And created order was exactly as it was supposed to be. But then, then mankind believed a lie. Man believed that he knew better than God. And in his rebellion, he orchestrated his own downfall. Man fell out of relationship with God. There's this fracturing that we read about in Genesis 3 as sin enters the world. Adam and Eve say, we know best. We can choose for ourselves better than God knows for us and we're going to do our own thing. And there was this break, this monumental break that's been felt throughout all history, this fracturing as sin enters the world. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin are death. Those who sin perish. And man is exiled from Eden. So man finds himself way out on a limb over here, distant and away from God who's over here. Man is exiled because a perfect and holy God 
cannot be near flawed and rebellious and destructive man. Man's sin and God's holiness are like oil and water. They can't mix. And we live as sons of those first men. You see, even on your best day, I wonder what you think, what comes to mind when you think of your best day. Maybe sports day when you were 12, winning the 800 meters. Even you on your best day, we still can't measure up to the holiness and perfection of God. So man is over here. But God, well, God is over here. God is perfect. The Bible tells us that that God exists in a column of smoke and a pillar of fire. That he is almighty and perfect. And so often we like to think of God as a cross between, you know, a genie and a fairy godmother. God is there to, to help us fulfill our desires. God is there to answer our every wish. No, no, the Bible tells us that God exists in a column of smoke and a pillar of fire, that he is almighty and perfect. So there's this disconnect, because man has been exiled from Eden, and God is perfect, and there's this gulf created by sin which exists between the two. And so many of our efforts since Eden have been trying to bridge that gap. The Bible could almost be read as a story of a people trying to bridge that gap between themselves and a holy God. Look at at your own life. Look at our culture today. We wouldn't necessarily name it this way, but ultimately there's an underlying lack when we're outside of relationship with our creator. There's, There's an idea of something greater, of a purpose beneath it all that we're always reaching for but that always seems just out of reach. The elusive white whale. And we carry around with us through life the guilt and shame of sin. And then there's this thing that happens in Leviticus 16, which seems like a load of rules and regulations, but we'll try and unpack it. And it's called Yom Kippur. Can you say Yom Kippur with me? Yom Kippur, which is a Jewish festival. I'm glad that you're joining in this morning. It makes me feel better about what I'm saying. Yom Kippur which means the Day of Atonement. If you've got your Bible open, the the heading that begins chapter 16 might say the Day of Atonement. And to atone for something means to cover it, to make right. It was so significant in the Jewish calendar that the rabbis referred to it simply as the day. The day. And it was a day to bridge the gap between man and God. God explains to Moses that the sins of the people, those things within them that would prevent them from being reunited with God, can be removed. But for this to happen, blood must be spilt. The sins of the people will be covered by the blood of sacrifice. Beginning to sound familiar. And so there are specific rituals, and so I'm going to read different chunks of this in Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 6, to get an idea of what's going on here. And it begins, Aaron, who is the high priest, is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. 
Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to make a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. And then from verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. So there's loads of different things going on there. It's quite a lot of sort of rituals and the order of things that have to be done. And, and the first thing I want to look at briefly is the priest. The priest, his name is uh, Aaron, and he is the high priest, and, and he's been chosen by God for the purposes. And his job is to mediate on behalf of the people. His job is to stand between God and the people and bring the communal sins of the, of the Israelites and bring them before God to atone for their sins. Jewish law documents that the preparations of the high priest would begin up to seven days before the Day of Atonement. And Aaron only has the right to enter the tent of meeting once a year on this day. Gives us an idea of the holiness of God. See, the tent of meeting was right in the middle of the camp. And it was where they literally believed the presence of God resided amongst the people. And it was a tent, and and inside it was the Ark of the Covenant, and there was a veil, and Aaron could only go past the veil, only go into the very presence of God once a year on this day. But first he had to make sacrifice for his own sin. We read in verse 11 that first he has to make personal sacrifice. And so the poor bull gets it. The bull is sacrificed, that he might cover his own sin, so that he'd even be ready to mediate for the people's sin. He enters the tent to present the offering on behalf of the people. And he enters in past the veil which covered the entrance to the tent, so which was only ever opened up once a year. And on this day, the day, he opened it up and entered in. But in verse 13, we read that he doesn't just open it up and walk in into the presence of God. He has to use incense. He takes a handful of 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 spices and a handful of coals and he scatters them in to create a smoke screen. And it says that he cannot fully see when he enters in the tent in case he should look directly upon the presence of God and die. See how holy God is. Which shows us the issue as well. Because man is not. There is imperfection, uncleanness that must be cleansed. And then... And then the passage talks about goats. Two goats for the people. 
they cast lots, which seems to have gone out of fashion. I wonder the, you know, when they stop doing that, you know, who's our small group leader going to be? Let's cast lots and decide. But it's gone out of fashion. Anyway, they cast lots. And one goat they decide, having cast lots, one goat will be taken and will be taken by Aaron into the very uh, tent of meeting, into the presence of God and be sacrificed. Its blood will be spilt for the sins of the people. And the second goat, this is really interesting, the second goat is referred to in our passage there as the scapegoat, which literally comes from the word Azazel. Can you say that word with me? Azazel. Slightly odd word, but it means the goat that takes away. That's what it means. The scapegoat. The chief of the priests, Aaron, would find, get this goat, the one that was lucky enough not to be sacrificed in the, in the tent, and he would place his hands on its head, and then the passage tells us his job was to speak out all the sins of the people. The people of God would spend days beforehand in the Jewish New Year searching themselves to find out any sin that they had in themselves that would need to be communally repented of. And he might be stood there a while with his hands on the head of this goat, speaking out the sins of the people. And then because he was the high priest and he couldn't become unclean, this goat now carries the sins of the people. Someone else would come and collect the goat and take it out into the wilderness where it would be taken away. But they literally believed as the priest stood there, as he spoke out the sins of the people on the head of the goat, that all of their iniquity, all of their sins, everything which might separate them from a relationship with God was cast onto the goat. And then it was taken out into the desert. Records actually suggest that there came a point where they didn't want to risk it returning home. Can you imagine three days later, the goat that carries the sins of the people chewing grass in your back garden? So they actually tied a huge rock around its neck and threw it over a cliff, just to make sure. Here's the crazy thing. They literally believed that once the goat had left the camp, their sins had been removed from them. The goat has gone and carried with it all their sins. And throughout the scriptures, there's this necessity for sacrifice, for blood to be spilt, to cover, to atone for the sins of the people. The scapegoat, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the people. And that's all well and good. And you might think, well, why didn't, why, what was wrong with that system? Why wouldn't you just keep doing that? Well, that maybe begins to answer some of that question of why Jesus? And why did Jesus have to die. Because imagine year after year, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's time for the, the day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's like a sledgehammer, year after year, pounding away the theme of sin. It works only to drub into us that we're sinful and guilty and unacceptable to a holy God. And in the, into the midst of this, onto this scene, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. Jesus comes. Jesus comes and he lives the kind of life that we might expect God to live. He says and he teaches the kind of things that we might expect God to say. And he dies ultimately the kind of death that we might expect God to die. 
And Jesus releases us from that depressing treadmill. He makes a sacrifice that is once and for all. The Day of Atonement has been replaced once and for all by the Day of Calvary. Jesus bridges that disconnection. So mankind's over here. God is over here. Jesus stands in the gap and bridges a broken humanity to a perfect and holy Father. And he says, it is finished. Amen? I'm preaching. Something spiritual happened. The cross of Jesus wasn't just a physical event. And it isn't just a physical event in human history. Nor is it a symbolic event. Wow, what an amazing guy. He laid his life down for his friends. Actually, something profoundly spiritual happened. Jesus became our high priest. That's the first thing that happened. Before the throne of God itself, we read in Hebrews 9 that Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one, like Aaron did for the Israelites. But Jesus entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. When Jesus died, he became the high priest who enters the very throne room of God to mediate on our behalf, not by the blood of a bull or by anything else that he might need to atone for his own sin first, but perfect, blemish-free. He came as the sacrifice by his own blood, the perfect mediator. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. He didn't have to just peel back the curtain, throw in some incense, run in, make a quick offering, and then run away. He peeled back the curtain by his blood. The temple curtain was torn in two. The presence of God was unveiled for all. And we, by his blood, can now enter the holiest of holy places. That disconnect between us and God is bridged in Christ. In fact, God made him that had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the very righteousness of Christ. In other words, when God looks on you and me in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's what he sees when he looks at you and me. Jesus, the perfect high priest, no need to atone for his own sacrifice first, ripped open the temple curtain, gave us constant, privileged access to the Father. And God hasn't changed. God is no less holy than he was in the Old Testament. But we might have access to him through the blood of Jesus. And the second thing is that Jesus is our scapegoat. Pilate, on the, on the night that Jesus was crucified, presented Jesus before the crowds. We read about it in John 19. Maybe we read it last weekend. And Pilate comes and he's been trying to figure out, what do I do with this guy, Jesus? Because these people want him killed. And he brings him before the crowds. And he says, here is your king. But they shouted. Does anybody remember? What the people shouted as Jesus was presented before them. 
can do better than that. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. No. That's not what they said. First they said this. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. And then they shouted, crucify him. Take him away. Take him away. Azazel. Jesus. The goat that takes away. The scapegoat. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. God gave Jesus that all of the sins of the people, that's you and that's me, could be laid on him, that he would be exiled in our place, that the penalty that we deserve would be placed on him. Azazel, the goat that takes away. That underlying separation, that separation between man and God is bridged by Jesus. I was amazed, I kind of got slightly giddy when I figured this out. But I, I, I realized, sort of reading through the story over Easter, that it is absolutely no surprise that the empty tomb opens up into a garden. Have you ever wondered that? The empty tomb of Jesus on that first Easter Sunday morning opens up into a beautiful garden. Because something has happened. He's restored that which was lost in the Garden of Eden. And our perfect relationship with God can be restored through him and through what he's done. It is finished. The goat has been taken away. And that that changes things for us. If you know Jesus, if you believe in him, if you follow him, if you place the weight of your life and you trust upon the promises of the Bible, then our identity is no longer year by year sinner, as it was, waiting for the day of atonement to become clean again until next year. The goat has been taken away once and for all. An all-sufficient sacrifice has been paid. God himself, as Kay read to us at the beginning of our gathering, we are no longer to be labeled sinners, but we are children of God. And yet, and yet sometimes we can still react like Adam and Eve. Sometimes, and we all make mistakes, we all have failings. Sometimes, though, we, we can sin and we end up holding God at arm's length. Or we find ourselves hiding in the garden, just like Adam and Eve. Well, that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because the cross means that we can turn to him in our sin. And actually, if we find ourselves, when, one, when we've sinned, turning away from God, then we've misunderstood the whole point of the truth of Jesus. Because our our sin should actually push us closer to him, not further away, as we recognize what he did for us on the cross. And that's why Jesus had to die. And that's why he rose again. Because no matter how faithful or dutiful or prayerful you are, we still fall short. And yet, and yet we can't be beyond the saving work, the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. What Jesus did was absolutely sufficient.
And no matter how dirty or broken or addicted we are, there's good news for us there as well. Because we can't be beyond the saving work of Jesus. What Jesus did was absolutely sufficient. And Christ has already named you worthy. We read in the, in the Bible that, that God showed his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's not about you. It's not about how well you can do stuff or, or your performance. He's already decided while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. There's an author called Brennan Manning. He's wrote a series of books that I absolutely love. And one of my favorite quotes is this. He said, My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. It's good, isn't it? My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. That's my prayer for each of us. A gift of grace because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus, you are the perfect high priest that you mediate on our behalf to the Father and that you make a way for us to enter the very presence of God. And we thank you that you are the scapegoat, you are the sacrifice, that as you were led outside of the city, as you were hung on that cross, you took the place that should have been ours, the wages of sin are death. But you made a way because of your love for us that we might know and love and have relationship with the Father, that underlying sense of lack that we know, that feeling in our lives sometimes of emptiness has been reconciled as you paid the price. And so we just want to respond by worshiping you, by praising you for what you've done, by recognizing um, the amazing thing you did for us as we celebrated last weekend. And we want to know your love We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would mediate the love of Jesus to us, that you would minister it to us, that we would be able to say that our deepest awareness of ourselves is that we're deeply loved by Jesus, recognizing that we've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Amen.